Section 7 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 3, Part 1. 3. E la faccia del sol nascere ombrata, purgatorio trenta. He had to surrender, in spite of an obstinate and heroic resistance, blows triumphed over his ill will. Every morning for three hours, and for three hours every evening, Jean Christophe was set before the instrument of torture, all on edge with attention and weariness with large tears rolling down his cheeks and nose he moved his little red hands over the black and white keys his hands were often stiff with cold under the threatening ruler which descended at every false note and the harangues of his master which were more odious to him than the blows he thought that he hated music and yet he applied himself to it with a zest which fear of melchior did not altogether explain certain words of his grandfather had made an impression on him the old man seeing his grandson weeping had told him with that gravity which he always maintained for the boy that it was worth while suffering a little for the most beautiful and noble art given to men for their consolation and glory and jean christophe who was grateful to his grandfather for talking to him like a man had been secretly touched by these simple words which sorted well with his childish stoicism and growing pride but more than by argument he was bound and enslaved by the memory of certain musical emotions bound and enslaved to the detested art against which he tried in vain to rebel there was in the town as usual in germany a theatre where opera opera comique operetta drama comedy and vaudeville are presented every sort of play of every style and fashion there were performances three times a week from six to nine in the evening old jean michel never missed one and was equally interested in everything once he took his grandson with him several days beforehand he told him at length what the piece was about Jean Christophe did not understand it, but he did gather that there would be terrible things in it, and while he was consumed with the desire to see them, he was much afraid, though he dared not confess it. He knew that there was to be a storm, and he was fearful of being struck by lightning. He knew that there was to be a battle, and he was not at all sure that he would not be killed. On the night before, in bed, he went through real agony and on the day of the performance he almost wished that his grandfather might be prevented from coming for him. But when the hour was near, and his grandfather did not come, he began to worry, and every other minute looked out of the window. At last the old man appeared, and they set out together. His heart leaped in his bosom, his tongue was dry, and he could not speak. They arrived at the mysterious building which was so often talked about at home, at the door Jean-Michel met some acquaintances, and the boy, who was holding his hand tight because he was afraid of being lost, could not understand how they could talk and laugh quietly at such a moment. 
Jean-Michel took his usual place in the first row behind the orchestra. He leaned on the balustrade and began a long conversation with the contrabass. He was at home there. There he was listened to because of his authority as a musician, and he made the most of it. It might almost be said that he abused it. Jean-Christophe could hear nothing. He was overwhelmed by his expectation of the play, by the appearance of the theatre, which seemed magnificent to him, by the splendour of the audience, who frightened him terribly. He dared not turn his head, for he thought that all eyes were fixed on him. He hugged his little cap between his knees, and he stared at the magic curtain with round eyes. At last three blows were struck. His grandfather blew his nose and drew the libretto from his pocket. He always followed it scrupulously, so much so that sometimes he neglected what was happening on the stage. The orchestra began to play. With the opening chords, Jean-Christophe felt more at ease. He was at home in this world of sound, and from that moment, however extravagant the play might be, it seemed natural to him. The curtain was raised to reveal pasteboard trees and creatures who were not much more real. The boy looked at it all, gaping with admiration, but he was not surprised. The piece set in a fantastic east, of which he could have had no idea. The poem was a web of ineptitudes in which no human quality was perceptible. Jean-Christophe hardly grasped it at all. He made extraordinary mistakes, took one character for another, and pulled at his grandfather's sleeve to ask him absurd questions which showed that he had understood nothing. He was not bored, passionately interested, on the contrary. Around the idiotic libretto he built a romance of his own invention, which had no sort of relation to the one that was represented on the stage. Every moment some incident upset his romance, and he had to repair it, but that did not worry him. He had made his choice of the people who moved upon the stage, making all sorts of different sounds, and breathlessly he followed the fate of those upon whom he had fastened his sympathy. He was especially concerned with a fair lady of uncertain age, who had long, brilliantly fair hair, eyes of an unnatural size, and bare feet. The monstrous improbabilities of the setting did not shock him. His keen, childish eyes did not perceive the grotesque ugliness of the actors, large and fleshy, and the deformed chorus of all sizes in two lines, nor the pointlessness of their gestures, nor their faces bloated by their shrieks, nor the full wigs, nor the high heels of the tenor, nor the make-up of his lady-love, whose face was streaked with variegated pencilling. He was in the condition of a lover, whose passion blinds him to the actual aspect of the beloved object. The marvellous power of illusion, natural to children, stopped all unpleasant sensations on the way, and transformed them. The music especially worked wonders. It bathed the whole scene in a misty atmosphere, in which everything became beautiful, noble, and desirable. It bred in the soul a desperate need of love, and at the same time showed phantoms of love on all sides, to fill the void that itself had created. Little Jean-Christophe was overwhelmed by his emotion. 
There were words, gestures, musical phrases which disturbed him. He dared not then raise his eyes. He knew not whether it were well or ill. He blushed and grew pale by turns. Sometimes there came drops of sweat upon his brow, and he was fearful lest all the people there should see his distress. When the catastrophe came about, which inevitably breaks upon lovers in the fourth act of an opera, so as to provide the tenor and the prima donna with an opportunity for showing off their shrillest screams, the child thought he must choke. His throat hurt him as though he had caught cold. He clutched at his neck with his hands and could not swallow his saliva. Tears welled up in him. His hands and feet were frozen. Fortunately, his grandfather was not much less moved. He enjoyed the theatre with a childish simplicity. During the dramatic passages he coughed carelessly to hide his distress, but Jean Christophe saw it, and it delighted him. It was horribly hot. Jean Christophe was dropping with sleep, and he was very uncomfortable. But he thought only, Is there much longer? It cannot be finished. Then suddenly it was finished, without his knowing why. The curtain fell, the audience rose, the enchantment was broken. They went home through the night, the two children, the old man and the little boy. What a fine night! What a serene moonlight! They said nothing. They were turning over their memories. At last the old man said, Did you like it, boy? Jean Christophe could not reply. He was still fearful from emotion, and he would not speak so as not to break the spell. He had to make an effort to whisper, with a sigh, Oh, yes. The old man smiled. After a time he went on, It's a fine thing, a musician's trade, to create things like that, such marvelous spectacles. Is there anything more glorious? It is to be God on earth. The boy's mind leaped to that. What? A man had made all that? That had not occurred to him. It had seemed that it must have made itself, must be the work of nature. A man, a musician, such as he would be some day? Oh, to be that for one day, only one day, and then afterwards, afterwards, whatever you like. Die if necessary, he asked. What man made that, grandfather? The old man told him of Francois-Marie Hassler, a young German artist who lived at Berlin. He had known him once. Jean-Christophe listened, all ears. Suddenly he said, And you, grandfather? The old man trembled. What? he asked. Did you do things like that? You too? Certainly, said the old man a little crossly. He was silent, and after they had walked a little he sighed heavily. It was one of the sorrows of his life. He had always longed to write for the theatre, and inspiration had always betrayed him. He had in his desk one or two acts written, but he had so little illusion as to their worth that he had never dared to submit them to an outside judgment. They said no more until they reached home. Neither slept. The old man was troubled. He took his Bible for consolation. In bed, Jean-Christophe turned over and over the events of the evening. He recollected the smallest details, and the girl with the bare feet reappeared before him. As he dozed off, a musical phrase rang in his ears as distinctly as if the orchestra were there. 
All his body leaped. He sat up on his pillow, his head buzzing with music, and he thought, Some day I also shall write. Oh, can I ever do it? From that moment he had only one desire, to go to the theatre again, and he set himself to work more keenly because they made a visit to the theatre his reward. He thought of nothing but that. Half the week he thought of the last performance, and the other half he thought of the next. He was fearful of being ill on a theatre day, and this fear made him often find in himself the symptoms of three or four illnesses. When the day came, he did not eat. He fidgeted like a soul in agony. He looked at the clock fifty times and thought that the evening would never come. Finally, unable to contain himself, he would go out an hour before the office opened for fear of not being able to procure a seat, and, as he was the first in the empty theatre, he used to grow uneasy. His grandfather had told him that once or twice the audience had not been large enough, and so the players had preferred not to perform and to give back the money. He watched the arrivals and counted them, thinking, Twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five? Oh, it is not enough! There will never be enough! And when he saw some important person enter the circle or the stalls, his heart was lighter, and he said to himself, They will never dare to send him away. Surely they will play for him. But he was not convinced. He would not be reassured until the musicians took their places, and even then he would be afraid that the curtain would rise and they would announce, as they had done one evening, a change of program. With Link's eyes he watched the stand of the contrabass to see if the title written on his music was that of the piece announced. And when he had seen it there, two minutes later, he would look again to make quite sure that he had not been wrong. The conductor was not there. He must be ill. There was a stirring behind the curtain, and a sound of voices and hurried footsteps. Was there an accident? Some untoward misfortune? Silence again. The conductor was at his post. Everything seemed ready at last. They did not begin. What was happening? He boiled over with impatience. Then the bell rang. His heart thumped away. The orchestra began the overture, and for a few hours Jean Christophe would swim in happiness, troubled only by the idea that it must soon come to an end. End of section 7